Tonight's message will be taken from Luke 23, verses 13 to 32. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to consider this to be the most important event in all of human history. So it's our opportunity to, to read it from the four Gospels and to see it from various perspectives. But as we approach this again, brothers and sisters, let's approach it with a spirit of sobriety and a sense of important significance that this applies uh, not just to us but to the entire church of Jesus Christ through all ages and uh, this will be the, the great story that we'll tell throughout all eternity. But let's tell the story again tonight. Luke 23, verse 13. Stand with me and hear the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed... Having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man! And release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested for who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid a hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these are important words, significant words, holy words. Words that convey to us the great story of what happened 2,000 years ago according to your purpose and to bring about the great vision of our redemption and our salvation. Father, impress these things upon us tonight. Help us to really study them and to understand what Jesus said and what Jesus did for us. In his name we pray, amen. 
Please be seated. So this, brothers and sisters, is the Via Dolorosa. This is uh, referred to as the Sorrowful Way. Via Dolorosa. You heard of that before? The Via Dolorosa. What is the Via Dolorosa? If you go to Jerusalem, I've never been there. But if you can go to Jerusalem, you'll be able to walk what they call the way to Calvary. You can walk a road that moves from the Praetorium where Jesus was convicted all the way to the hill Calvary. And this is uh, called the Sorrowful Way, the Via Dolorosa. So what we want to do tonight is, is, I suppose, many ways to look at this passage, but I want to look at the characters in the story tonight. There are seven personalities that are encountered along the Sorrowful Way, seven characters that we can address on the road to Calvary. So let's just look at these one by one. Seven personalities. Some are individuals, some are groups. But we'll go after them one by one to gain a little bit of perspective. Who are these people? And then we'll end with Jesus. But let's begin with the first personality at the trial of Christ. And we've already covered this man before several times uh, in this study. And that is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is our first personality tonight. Pilate is extremely important in Christian creeds and confessions. It's interesting he shows up in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was convicted under Pontius Pilate. We read that in the very short creed. And why is this? Well, maybe a number of reasons why Pilate shows up at such, as such an important person. There's been many books. There have been movies and such produced on his life. But the reason why Pilate is so important, I believe, in the Christian testimony, Christian creeds, is because his place in history is indisputable. Uh, this, this man is connected to Jesus, and there really is no question, certainly no question in terms of God's revelation to us, but there's no question either in secular history that Pontius Pilate was involved in the trial of Jesus. And I think what happens here is that this embeds Jesus Christ in human history. And that's so important to us, isn't it? That Jesus would come into our world. That he is as real as my wife sitting down there in the front row tonight. That Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem. That Jesus was convicted under Pontius Pilate. That Jesus took upon himself human flesh. And that's the real thing. That he, he was like us. He, flesh and blood like us. And indeed, he went to the cross and he shed real blood on that cross for our real sins. And it was a most effectual atonement for our sins. It occurred on an altar. The altar was a crucifix or a cross. There has been a recent identification of some ancient art that comes from the first century. It turns out that Jehovah's Witnesses were wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses make a big deal out of the fact that there was no cross involved, but Jesus was merely hung on a tree, and his hands were put straight up like this. But uh, more recently, there's been some 
pictures identified. I don't know if it's in tombs or where, but it turns out that indeed the cross was a cross. The crucifixion, the idea of crucifying, which was a Roman practice that goes back into the 5th century B.C., was indeed something of a cross. Now, it's possible that there was a pole that was placed in the ground. And so this was a place of crucifixion, but what they would do is they would bring the cross piece with them. So it may have been that Jesus did not drag the entire cross because the the pole was set into the ground. It was possible, highly possible, that he was merely bringing the cross piece with him, which would have weighed something like 90 to 100 pounds. So it would have been a fairly heavy burden for our Lord along the way to Calvary. But here's the point, is that Jesus was set on an altar, and it was a wooden cross. It was ordered by a Roman prefect by the name of Pontius Pilate somewhere around the year 33 A.D. Indeed, Pontius Pilate was removed from office in 36 A.D., so approximately three years after the crucifixion. So there's no question at all that Pilate was the man involved at the trial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that these things happened in history, that Jesus really did take upon himself human flesh, that Jesus really did spill his blood on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. This would have been one of the most important events that occurred that year. All of Jerusalem knew about it. Most of the Roman Empire would have heard about it through Tacitus or Josephus, both of those historians, the major historians of the Roman Empire in that era, uh, wrote on the death of Jesus Christ. So this thing was not done in a corner, and I think that's what's important. That's why Pontius Pilate is so important. The gospel is history. Now, Pilate was a politician. We've already mentioned this up to this point. He had quelled uprisings among certain of the zealots of his time, including Barabbas, we'll talk about later. He himself created tensions among the Jews by his strong-arm policies. But here was no definitive threat whatsoever to the Roman powers. We've already mentioned that. That Pilate saw that there was no problem with Jesus Christ. He was not a threat to the Roman Empire. Apparently, this Jesus was only a threat to the Jews, with whom he was always interested in reducing tensions, because there were so many political tensions that were going on between the Jews and the Romans, and Pilate was there to try to quell as much of those tensions as he possibly could. Now, Pilate's eventual removal from office occurred because he violently suppressed an armed Samaritan movement at Mount Gerizim. It would have occurred about three years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So, but the question, of course, is why do we do the things we do? What is it that motivates us? What are the heart commitments that motivate us in any certain situation? It's our heart motivation, isn't it, that distinguishes between that which is obedient to God and that which is disobedient to God. What was it that motivated Pilate? What was his heart commitment His heart commitment was saving his job. That's why Pilate put Jesus Christ to death. He was concerned for his own job. He was concerned for his political position. He might have been concerned for his material well-being. But that's why he approved the execution of the Son of God. So Pilate killed Jesus over that issue. Let's move on. Number two, the Jews were incited against Jesus as well. So this is the second personality that we want to look at tonight. 
It's uh, the Jewish people who are pressing so hard uh, for the execution of Christ, the Messiah. I think Pilate underestimated the animus the Jews had towards Jesus. He had had at least enough common grace to realize that Jesus was innocent. He could find no criminal issue with, with Jesus. In fact, it's interesting, four times in the chapter, Pilate declared Jesus to be innocent. Verse 4, verse 15, verse 20, and verse 22. One time before he sends him off to Herod, and then three times in our passage tonight, we read that Pilate has declared Jesus to be innocent. In fact, I guess arguably five times if you include verses 14 and 15. And Pilate said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. But indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. So there's another instance. Herod didn't find a fault with him either. For I sent him back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Nevertheless, the chief priests... The rulers, the other Jews, gathered themselves together and they insisted upon Pilate releasing Barabbas instead of Jesus. Their hatred of Christ had reached a fever pitch at this point. But what is it that motivates such animus? Again, I want to explore what is it in the hearts of men that so turn against Jesus. Well, in Matthew 27, verse 18, uh, we find that Pilate knew they had handed him over because of envy. So he understood some kind of hatred. Envy has the idea of hatred or the idea of a basic animus that lies deep in the human heart. And I think all of us have instances where we know this envy. We know that there are times at which we have disliked somebody who is more blessed than we are, more righteous than we are, more successful than we are, or even more loving than we are. And so I I think there isn't a person in here that hasn't seen an instance in which they express themselves with such sinful intentions. And I got that glimpse into my own heart when I tripped my younger brother. And I've said this before in our services, but, but the thing that bothers me so much about myself is that my brother Eric was a really nice guy. And he was one of the kindest of all of the children. And I was one of the meanest. I was full of envy and hatred towards him, and God so convicted my heart of that envy that, uh, that he brought me, I think, to real repentance and faith in the years that followed. Um, but I still remember it to this day. But brothers and sisters, this is us. This is, we, this is our, our hearts. Our hearts have this envy, this, this competition and strife and, and jealousies and competitions and things that motivate us. And uh, this is what we see with the Jews at, at this time. Verse 18, they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him, let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. The voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. Is there ever a question as to the evil intent of the human heart? The idea that man is somehow 
inherently good seems to dissipate when we see how all the restraints that God may place upon the human heart are removed, as in the case of uh, this story, this event. Uh, But tremendous evil potential isn't there in the depraved human heart. Kill him, they cry out. Kill him. Kill Jesus. Kill God. Kill all that is good. Kill the truth. He spoke the truth. Kill it. Kill the Savior. Kill the Messiah. Kill the King. This was the mob reaction that was coming from the hearts of these evil people at the time. We sang the song of the hymn tonight of how the man who wrote the song says, I hear my own voice crying, crucify him, as he carries the burden of my own sins to the cross. So none of us can say that we are any better than these that have aligned themselves against the Savior Jesus. Also, I just say democracy is scary. This is democracy. This is what it looks like. I don't think oligarchy is that much better. We can look at the Russians and determine whether that's all that much better. But monarchy sometimes is a bit better than democracy. If you get a good king, get a righteous king. But uh, once again, if you don't get a righteous king, you're in a lot of trouble. Why? Because the hearts of men are so depraved. It's just scary bad, given the hearts of men deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And here it is. They're all restraints removed and... uh, All common grace removed from these men as they cry out for the crucifixion of the Messiah. They obviously hated Jesus, and they killed him. Pilate, Herod, the Jews, I still say they were were ignorant. There's still an ignorance here. They had no idea what they were doing. They were, in a real sense, way over their heads. And this is because man doesn't understand the true depths of his own iniquity. Now, man doesn't understand the, the, the wickedness and the injustice and unrighteousness and the lack of holiness that so, so characterizes our, our sin, our thoughts, our words, our actions. We don't understand it. We don't, we don't get to the depth of it. And yet Jesus does. God understands this. That's why his holiness demands an infinite sacrifice or an infinite judgment or punishment in hellfire where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. So there's obviously something very serious about sin that is not recognized uh, by these people. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7 speaks of this. Uh, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That is, they had no idea of the magnitude of their crime. The, the depths of the injustices they were bringing to bear. They had no idea who this was. They had no idea that this was the God-man. This was the, the one in, who intended to bring about the atonement for our sins, for their sins. They didn't see themselves as that bad. They didn't see Jesus as that good. Two problems. Two problems. And so they killed their creator. They killed the judge of the earth, the only one who could or would ever say to anybody, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devils and his angels. I don't think the average person, if you had interviewed them at that time, I don't think the average person, well now this is the judge of all the earth, and one day he will cast people into hellfire forever and ever, or this is the one who created me. And everybody around this globe and the entire universe, this is the creator of the universe and we are about to crucify him. 
Nobody said that. Nobody knew it. They were ignorant to what they were doing as they brought the, the Son of God himself uh, to Calvary. Okay, so that's the second personality. Let's move on to the third personality, Barabbas. The word Barabbas, or the name Barabbas, is bar. What is bar in the Hebrew? Son. Bar-Jonah, bar-whoever. Bar-Abbas. And Abbas is father. He's the son of the father. So Barabbas is the son of the father. There are two sons of the father that are involved in this trial. There's Barabbas, who is the son of the father. And then there is the other son of the father. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that is somewhat interesting that there are two sons of the Father involved in this trial. But here, Barabbas is a man truly guilty of death, as determined by the law of God. So no question this man was guilty of murder. Sedition, yes, but murder as well. And therefore, he would have been subject to the death penalty. It would have been a just thing to put this man to death. But here we have the guilty one who should have been crucified but wasn't. He was set free, and the innocent one who was crucified in his stead. And so I I believe this symbolism is unmistakable. That should have been you and me hanging on that tree. We were the guilty ones. But Jesus died instead. The innocent for the guilty. The most innocent for the most guilty. So this, this is the picture we're getting from the example of Barabbas in the story. Barabbas received mercy. Now, I don't think Barabbas had anything to do with his release. Uh, He had no idea why. He had no idea who Jesus was. And yet, he received mercy. Let's move on to the fourth personality on the way to the Calvary. Simon a Cyrenian, which is in eastern Libya, And Libya is just a little bit west of Egypt. So it's the next northern African nation just west of Egypt. So he may have been an African. We don't know. He's a random foreigner who carries the cross of Christ down Calvary's way. He may have been a Jew. He may have been African. We don't really know. There were Jews who lived in Libya at that time as part of some of the dispersions. But Simon the Cyrenian is grabbed as a random foreigner to carry the cross of Jesus. Mark 15.21 speaks of him as the father of Alexander and Rufus, probably two believers in the early church. There's no reason to believe that he was a follower of Jesus, no reason to believe that Simon was anything but a random stranger who was in the wrong place or the right place at the right time. So this, I believe, signifies what? What is it? signifies that there was nobody else to carry the cross. No friend, no disciple, nobody. This shows a total lack of support and loyalty coming from the thousands, if not tens of thousands, of men who had been benefited by Christ's healings, his teachings, and his example. His own disciples, as we said before, were not there to walk the path with him. Not one would have supported him. He was truly abandoned. And this, I believe, is another indication of the tremendous humiliation that was sustained by our Savior Jesus. Jesus experienced total abandonment. He came to his own, his own received him not. I believe also that 
there is a spiritual force working here on the way to Calvary, all the way from the Garden of Gethsemane to Calvary. There is a point at which the prince of this world has come. And Jesus says, nothing on me, right, in John 14. But evidently, the prince of this world had something on others. There was nothing that would have uh, intimidated Jesus or slowed him down in his willingness to fulfill the, the will of the Father. But certainly, it affected the disciples. And this is a very important spiritual lesson for all of us. There is a fear and there is a faithlessness that envelopes believers when these spiritual forces are at work. Remember, the disciples of Jesus were cautioned to watch and pray, but they didn't. And so when the evil day approached, they didn't have on the full armor of God. They weren't watchful and they were not prayerful. And the point is, brothers and sisters, that We don't know when the evil day will come in this church. We don't know when there is that do-or-die moment at which the fire comes, it burns through, persecution, whatever it is, uh, demonic pressure upon this body, some kind of strange division that might occur, whatever it is, a spiritual force coming down upon the body. And then oftentimes results in apostasies or dispersions or people leaving for fear and faithlessness. Uh, but, But we need to be ready for the evil day. The point is, watch and pray for the evil day will come. I don't know if it's going to be next Monday or whether it'll be March 15th of 2024. We just don't know. But Jesus did instruct his disciples to watch and pray for the day will come. The day of testing will come. Moreover, we really need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us. And how do we know that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, but that we are right now walking in the Spirit and and demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit right now, or growing ourselves in the fruits of the Spirit? Uh, This is a strong indication that we are in the Spirit, but where the Spirit is not poured out, the intimidating force of the world and the power of the prince of this world is impossible for Christians to handle. And that's why uh, we, we see this very dark time in the lives of these disciples. As, as we've said, 50 days later, the whole scene changes with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the willingness of the disciples to subject themselves to death itself. So that is the story, or that is the personality of this man, Simon the Serenian. Let's move on to number five. The fifth personality in this story are the two thieves. And that shows up in the last verse of our passage tonight. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And they did uh, drag their crosses evidently along this way uh, to Calvary as well. In Mark's account, we find that with him there were crucified two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53 and verse 12. So here is an example of Jesus dragging his cross with two other criminals. He's associated with the lowest of the low. Even among the Romans, crucifixion was the most ignoble death for the scum of society. This was the bottom of the barrel. You could not get any worse than this. But Jesus associates himself with the lowest of the low in his death. 
He humbles himself even to the death of the cross. And as we read in Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So this also has, uh, you know, biblical reference to it. It's interesting, the Romans uh, took this up in the 4th or 5th century B.C., well after this passage was written in the book of Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But it was God's intention that the Romans, including Julius Caesar and others, took up the practice of crucifixion, that this prophecy would be fulfilled in the life and the death of our Savior. So the Father had numbered Jesus with the transgressors. Jesus was taken from prison and from judgment. We read in, again, Isaiah 53, Who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. So as a true scapegoat, Jesus was counted the sinful one, bearing the sins of his people upon himself as, as though he was the criminal, taking his cross outside of the city uh, to Calvary. So as the two thieves dragged their crosses up towards Calvary, they didn't know who this third person was until a sign went up and I think some indication one thief repented, and we can, we'll read of that story later. But let's move on to the weeping women. This is the sixth personality in the story of the cross, uh, the crucifixion. Verse 27, a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. These women had, I think, more sensitivity to the sheer horror of the events that were unfolding. And oftentimes women do. Men may be hardened to it, uh, but women have an emotional sense of these things. It doesn't really bother me, uh, my wife mentioned this to me earlier today, that She's feeling a little emotionally distraught over uh, some of the things that are going on and certainly sinners that need to be converted. That's, that's a big one. And so she feels it very deeply, and I think this is what is happening with the women in the story. They're, they're feeling that something very bad is, is happening, and they respond in, in tears. They respond in weeping. But again, they don't know the half of it. They don't know what's happening. N- nobody knew what was happening except Jesus. There's only one person that can tell us what's going on, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's our seventh personality. So we'll end here tonight. These are the last words he spoke before the crucifixion, as far as we know. Verse 28, Jesus turning to these women who are weeping. He said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren. Wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And he's speaking to the Romans who are acting against uh, Jesus in the green wood. There's still something of a political uh, uh, detente going on between the Jews, between Pilate and the Jews. Uh, and so there's a sense in which things are sort of okay, except for the fact that they are crucifying their Messiah. But then Jesus said, if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? Speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But here it's interesting that Jesus had nothing to say to Herod. Remember that? He was silent in the presence of Herod. He had nothing to say to his accusers. And yet he had something to say to these women. Now, I want to point out something about this. This is very important as we examine these last words of Jesus before the crucifixion. 
He doesn't commend the women for weeping. But he's willing to address them with one last honest word of warning. This is not a sentimental Christ here. And as we study something of the sorrowful way, the Via Dolorosa, most of it's pretty sentimental. You see how the Catholics celebrate the way to Calvary. It's pretty sentimental. I don't get that from this passage. There's no sentimentality here. There's no interest in anybody's um, sentimental support for him. He's not really interested in that. He's wanting to face people with their sin. That's really what he's doing here. He's not so absorbed in his own painful situation that he cannot be concerned for others. And these are some of the most severe words that I think he's ever spoken. Jesus is looking forward to, or can prophetically see what's coming. And he sees that there's the horror of AD 70 that's soon to come upon the people of Jerusalem. There's a horror to the injustice that's happening he doesn't ignore that. He doesn't ignore the sin of the injustice. He feels that he needs to speak to it, at least with the women, who may still have some common grace to, to listen to him. He's not going to say it to Pilate. not going to say it to the Jews. He's going to say it to the women. He's going to speak the truth to the women. And so he speaks it, even in his pain and agony. He can see the horrors of AD 70 coming and the iniquity that's being committed by the Jews will be visited upon the third and fourth generation. The iniquity will result in the severing of the branch from the vine. It will mark an end to the Jewish nation in AD 70. It's a warning for all of us not to treat sin so lightly. And this particular sin is so serious it sealed the doom of the Jewish people for over a thousand years. So in some sense, Jesus didn't need tears. This was not the end for him. It was only the beginning. He was marching into battle, and the victory was certain. The victory was his. The loss was theirs. They would not receive him as their savior, their Christ and their king, and they would be crushed by the Romans. The Romans could not keep Jesus in the grave. They couldn't stop his resurrection. They couldn't stop up his tomb. Remember that the guards themselves couldn't stop it. Nobody could stop the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus won. The Jews lost in AD 70, and the pagan Roman Empire lost 400 years later. So, brothers and sisters, it's not for us to weep over Jesus. It's for us to weep over our sin and then exalt in Jesus. Exalt in his courage, his love, his victory for us at the cross and by his resurrection. That's the story of the way to the cross, the Via Dolorosa. Father in heaven, tonight, we seriously consider our own sin and what utter destruction this brought upon the Jewish people. Father, it's a sober thing to think about what is this sin? What is the horror of it? What is the thing that would drive the nails into the hands of the Son of God for us. What is this sin? Oh, Lord God, 
those who count their sin but lightly perceive the evil less. Here would view its nature rightly. Here the guilt would estimate. Father, help us to understand more so the seriousness of our sin, but also the greatness of this great salvation, this atonement, this redemption, this release from the power of Satan and sin brought about by Jesus' death and resurrection. Oh God, help us to understand these things, to stand in awe of Jesus, to weep over our sin, yes, but to delight in the love of Christ, to rejoice in the salvation of Christ and the victory of Christ at the cross for us. Now we pray this in the name of our wonderful, magnificent, majestic, powerful, victorious Savior, our Lord Jesus. Amen.